0: Play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show.
1: Cairo, Seattle.
0: Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Michelle Zahner. Michelle has released two albums under the name Japanese Breakfast, and the song you're listening to right now is from her soon-to-be-released record, Jubilee. is also the author of a new, very popular memoir called Crying in H Mart. The book is about her relationship with her mother, who died of cancer in 2014 when Michelle was only 25. But the book is also about food, specifically the Korean food that connected Michelle to her mother and to her culture. Do you think your mom would be surprised that you've gotten into cooking as much as you have?
2: Definitely. She would be really like weirded out by it, probably. <laughs>
0: Her mom was Korean, and unfortunately, she passed away before Michelle had a chance to learn any of her recipes. But this is not an uncommon story. If you're the child of an immigrant, you may know that it is hard to wrestle these recipes from your parents and your grandparents because they don't write anything down and they don't use measuring spoons or measuring cups. Melissa Miranda, chef-owner of Seattle's modern Filipino restaurant, Musang, will join the show to talk about the project she did to trick these grannies into handing over their
1: recipes. In my family, my parents and my grandparents never measured anything. Melissa will join us later in the show, but first, my
0: conversation with Michelle Zahner. Michelle was born in Seoul, Korea, but she mostly grew up in Eugene, Oregon with a Korean mom and a white American dad. But when her mom was diagnosed with cancer, she was living on the East Coast. So she moved back to Eugene to take care of her mom. And after she passed away, a lot of Michelle's memories were tarnished by that very traumatic time. But she managed to find peace and solace in a very unexpected place, the Korean grocery store, H Mart.
2: Yeah, so H Mart is a Korean grocery chain. It stands for Hanarim, which means roughly translates to one armful of groceries. And yeah, it was like it just became like a a real refuge for me and a, a really enjoyable place to get my groceries and kind of spark a lot of uh, forgotten memories I had of my my childhood and, and my mom and uh, yeah you can get like all sorts of uh, Korean side dishes there and you know instant noodles and then there's there's also usually like a food court and like a Korean beauty counter and and uh, a lot of great groceries I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> Have you actually cried in H Mart? I cry in H Mart like all the time. Aww, <laughs> I mean still? not so much anymore but uh, I cried recently because uh, you know sometimes you'll see um, Korean moms with their like kids going off to college and stuff and they're like buying them groceries and stuff like that and like escorting them along in the same way that I remember being in a grocery store with my mom and and that just just wrecks me you know Mm
0: When Michelle was a kid, every other summer of her childhood, she and her mom would spend six weeks in Korea staying with family. And eating was a huge part of these visits. Whether her aunts were ordering Korean-Chinese delivery, or they were going out to eat, or someone in the family was cooking, these trips were partially designed to let her mother eat all of the foods she was homesick for. In the book, Michelle writes about one of these trips. She talks about arriving in Seoul late at night and not being able to sleep because of jet lag. And at three in the morning, her mom suggested they get up and raid her sister's refrigerator. She writes, At home, I was scolded if I got caught poking around in the pantry past eight. But in Seoul, my mom was like a kid again, leading the campaign. Standing at the counter, we'd open every Tupperware container full of homemade banchan and snack together in the blue dark of the humid kitchen. Sweet braised black soybeans, crisp yellow sprouts with scallion and sesame oil, and tart juicy cucumber kimchi— were shoveled into our mouths behind spoonfuls of warm lavender kongbap straight from the open rice cooker. We'd giggle and shush each other as we ate with our fingers, sucking salty, rich, custardy raw crab from its shell, prodding the meat from its crevices with our tongues, licking our soy sauce-stained fingers. Between chews of a wilted perilla leaf, my mother would say, this is how I know you're a true Korean. You had a complicated relationship with your mom when you were younger, but food did bring you together. Can you talk about how you kind of got your mother and your aunt's approval early on?
2: Yeah, um, one thing that I love uh, that's in the book is while I struggled to be good, I excelled at being courageous. And I think that that was a realization I came to pretty early on. Um, My mom was very you know particular and could be very critical about things and i was like a really rowdy tomboy and so i really struggled to um behave to her standards but um at an early age i was a pretty courageous eater and i remember trying a number of dishes that my mom was was really surprised and, and proud of of me having the sort of uh adventuresome nature to try uh and and i think that there were things that sort of you know as as someone who's mixed race like she could look at and be like that's how i know you're korean that, that's me in there you know
0: yeah what were the foods specifically that really impressed her and and cemented you as a real
2: korean yeah so sun nakji which is in the book um is like live octopus koreans typically like really extreme foods like the soups are really scalding hot and uh, if something's meant to be cold it's served with ice and if it's spicy it's really spicy it's really red and and flavorful Um, and so you know a lot of the seafood is like freshly killed they like very live fresh seafood yeah the san Nakchi is this live long armed um octopus that you know they cut the tentacles like pretty much right at the table and and they're still pulsing and so I was like maybe seven or eight when I tried that for the first time, and my my relatives were very impressed with me, and that sort of set me on a path of of you know oh i'll I'll show you what else I can eat. <laughs> do you feel like you do that even now when you're eating with friends in the States? Yeah, definitely. I, I really pride myself in, in um not having any dietary restrictions. And mm-hmm. I, I pretty much like everything and, and, and have always been a pretty courageous eater, I'd say. Could you just talk about
0: your relationship with your mom through food? Maybe you could start with how your
2: mom was so controlling about every
0: meal that you had together.
2: Yeah, I think that might be like um a specifically Korean thing because like, I mean, I'm sure it's very present in other cultures and families, but in Korean food, like there's so many different ways you could eat a thing because there's so many side dishes and like sauces and like different ways that you can eat something and to create this like perfect bite. So I think everyone sort of has an opinion about what the best way to do that is and and so my mom would frequently um sort of micromanage the way that I ate, like oh don't add too much of the sauce it'll get too salty or like make sure it gets crispy or ask for it this way um don't cut the noodles it's bad luck um so there's a lot of stuff like that in in my culture did it bug you or were you okay with it um you know as a child it didn't bother me but I think when you rot into a teenager and and you start to hate like every normal thing that your parents do um it, it becomes irritating What would your last meal be? There's a meal that my mom used to make for me every time I came home from college. I would fly home from Bryn Mawr College to Eugene, Oregon. And, you know, my mom would pick me up from the airport and then drive me like 30 minutes back home. And then she, you know, I remember just like sitting on the couch and my mom would just immediately get to work making the same meal that I I look forward to every single time and would bring all of the plates over to the coffee table and I would eat it on the ground, like watching TV and like my mom would be behind me. Kind of like with her hand on my shoulder, and that's like just love and care, you know. Like that's just I miss that feeling. That's like what that tastes like to me. Is like I'm being taken care of. I'm when you're an adult and you don't have your mom anymore. No one does that for you again. She would marinate short rib like two days in advance and get this kind of kimchi that I love called tongchimi, which is like a white radish water kimchi. And she would cut up the kimchi. And make sure that it was perfectly soured and like sat on the counter for a couple of days. So it was really extra fermented and tart. And uh, she would cut up this like Tongchumi radish, mix it with this brine, uh, some red pepper flakes and sesame oil and sesame seeds. And then serve it alongside the short rib kalbi barbecue. And she would make that with a side of rice and all these different like side dishes that I loved. And that has always been like home for me. And it's like something I'll never get to eat again. But um, I always think of my mom and, like, how much care went into that meal every time I came home. It's just that meal that's, like, I'll always be someone's baby, you know? Like, that's, like, what that meal reminds me of. And if I could have that again for my last meal, that would would be it.
0: Is that something that you've attempted to make?
2: It's just never the same. I mean, I make that kind of meal all the time, you know? But it's like, it's like you're a baby. (laughs) Like, when it's your mom making it for you, it's like... The food tastes different than when you make it for yourself and for other people. And I feel like that taste is like you can never replicate it.
0: We're going to pause for just a moment, but when we come back, Michelle talks about how she learned to cook the Korean dishes that she grew up with. just a fair away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Baybridge Island, a girl's trip to Poulsbo, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, You are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned axe and arrow. And visit Alandon Gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash meal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. After Michelle's mom died, she wanted to be comforted by the food she grew up with, the foods that her mother had always cooked for her. So she did what most modern people do when they need to learn how to do something. She went to YouTube.
1: Hi everybody, what are you cooking? These days when I go outside,
0: I feel chilly, so cold. What can we do to make our house so cozy and warm? That kind of food I'm going to make today. This is soft tofu stew, sundubu jjigae. Everybody's a favorite. That's where she discovered monkchi a Korean home cook with five and a half million followers who teaches her viewers how to cook classic Korean dishes. The New York Times once
2: called her YouTube's Korean Julia Child. I mean, it was pretty much like the day after her funeral that I looked online for a recipe for denjangjigae, which is like a fermented soybean stew that's really common staple in in many Korean households. And my aunt and my cousin were visiting, and I, I just wanted to do something nice for them. And so I looked online for a recipe and found Mangchi, who's a YouTube vlogger, uh, who's really sort of demystified the Korean cooking process for a lot of Americans and, you know, English speakers. And she very much taught me how to to cook a lot of the Korean dishes. And then you got to meet Mangchi. I saw that you, when you were doing the show for Vice, you actually got to interview her, right? I had written this essay called Love, Loss, and Kimchi that was largely about... How grateful I was to her for helping me through this really difficult time in my life and, and how much joy she brought back into my household. And, you know, when it was published in Glamour, she called me. She saw that it had won Glamour Magazine's Essay of the Year in 2016. And she gave me a call and was like, I'm just so proud of you. Like, Mm. I feel like you're, you know, digital mom or something. And then so we kind of like kept in touch. And when I did that munchie series, I invited her to be a part of it. And then the day after was my 30th birthday. And she was like, Oh, come to my house. I'll like make you dinner. And so I actually went to her house for for dinner uh, for my 30th birthday. And she made an amazing spread of like bulgogi and like her incredible homemade kimchi. And yeah, she's been really, really generous and and kind to me. So what
0: were some of the foods that helped you grieve. You know, you wanted to make these foods that your mom had cooked for you.
2: You know, shortly after my mom passed, I made a dish called chachuk, which is uh, pine nut porridge that my mom was eating a lot during her illness. And so when I discovered mang chi, one of the first videos I was compelled to create was her recipe for chachuk. I think that it felt like this real sort of psychological undoing of some of the shame that I felt of how I'd maybe let my mom down and my like failure to figure out how to nourish her in a way. Um, So that was one of the first things I made. Uh, My mom's like kalbi recipe and and kimchi jjigae and like all these kind of staples were followed pretty shortly after because my mom always made those things for me and I, I needed to figure out how to make them for myself.
0: According to the book, like it was never exactly like your mom's. Have you kind of been at peace at having your own flavors that are kind of your signatures now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has that feeling where like nothing is as as good as mom's, in, in a way, and I I so miss taste of my mom's food. But yeah, I mean, I guess they're like homages to her, to her cooking in a way, and and uh, you know, that's that's the best I can do.
0: This does not exist in my family, but maybe you're from the Midwest or from the South and you're lucky enough to have one of those little recipe boxes where your mom or your grandma wrote in loopy cursive handwriting all of their recipes for biscuits or tuna casserole. Or maybe you have some of your family's recipes because they were printed in one of those spiral bound church cookbooks. But if you're the child of an immigrant, there is not usually that kind of record keeping. You hear these stories all the time from the children of parents who are from Asia or the Middle East or from South America, where the kid asks their parents how to make a dish and the parent is super nonchalant about it and just says, a dash of this, a dash of that. There's no measurements and it's really hard to get the dish to taste how you want it to taste. Well, that story was very familiar for Chef Melissa Miranda, whose dad immigrated to Seattle from the Philippines in the 1970s
1: childhood, I was surrounded by Filipino food because of my dad. But then there was this kind of shame around it, you know, and I'd take my lunches to school and I would be embarrassed because, you know, it
0: smelled. Melissa went to culinary school in Italy. She lived in Italy for six years before moving to New York. And then a few years ago, she came back to Seattle, where she was cooking at an
1: Italian restaurant. When she came home, she
0: reconnected with a Vietnamese friend named Alan Vu.
1: There was this kind of light bulb moment. Um, Alan came to me and was like, Mel, we're never going to learn our parents' food unless we, like, shadow them. You know, and, like, there's no cookbooks to really be able to familiarize ourselves with the dishes that aren't in the restaurants. What about the stuff they cook at home? Um, And he had spent time with one of his friend's moms growing up in high school who was an incredible cook. And so we set it up that I would shadow her and kind of just take notes and observe as best as I could to recreate these dishes that she was sharing with us. But here's the catch. This woman didn't speak English, so Melissa
0: had to really pay attention. Melissa and Alan teamed up with a couple other friends to create a series of pop-up dinners called No Cookbooks Allowed, where they cook the dishes they learned by watching various immigrant home cooks and taking notes. Before she started doing these pop-up dinners, Melissa had pretty much always cooked Western food in restaurants.
1: So when I came back to Seattle, I had realized how much the city had changed. i have been gone for almost eight years. and was I kind of just realized, you know, especially driving through Beacon Hill, where my father immigrated to, like all the Filipino restaurants that we had gone to were gone. Mm-hmm. It just kind of was this moment where like, how can we bring education of Filipino food, of flavors, of dishes, etc., if it doesn't exist here. We wanted to showcase that there is so much more than just, you know, adobo or pancit. Like, there's so many more flavors for you to understand. We made it a point always to write the menus in Tagalog because there's such an education and learning point for folks, you know, like it takes years, you know, but we're familiar with You know, Vietnamese dishes and Japanese dishes and Thai dishes, we can say them and pronounce it in the language. But like, we don't even know what that is in Tagalog, you know. And so that was kind of a big point for me um, in starting the pop-ups.
0: The pop-ups were super popular. So a couple years ago, Melissa opened a Filipino restaurant in Beacon Hill called
1: Musong which is named after her dad. My dad actually immigrated to Seattle um, in the 70s. He drove a black Mustang, and the T fell off, so he became Musang. His group of friends that he made here were were all young Filipinos, and they all had nicknames themselves. So one's name was like Val Afro because he had the biggest afro. Um, One was Slaipa'a, which means feet in Tagalog because he had big feet. And so... My whole childhood in hanging out with them as well, because they were like my uncles. Anywhere we would be, whether it was the mall or the park or an event, you know, all I'd hear is musang.
0: Before she opened the restaurant, Melissa took a three-month trip to the
1: Philippines to visit friends. I was experiencing back pains and she was like, let's take you to the healer. And she was this powerful and older Filipino woman, like, she was so, so small, but her hands were just, like, so large, and, like, just looking at them, you kind of knew there was something really incredible about her. You know, she was doing work, and then she looked at my arm, and I have an owl tattoo on my arm, and I don't speak the dialect, and she just was, like, asking my friend, she's like, why does she have a owl? She should have a musang tattoo. So musang in Tagalog means wild cat. And it was just this moment where I was like, wait, what? Like, what did she say? And the fact that that came out of nowhere, it was this just kind of moment of like, maybe that's where we need to go.
0: Melissa is actually reading Michelle's book, Crying in H Mart, right now. When I met up with her for the interview, she actually pulled the book out of her bag. So I wanted to know if she has a strong connection to a grocery store, just
1: like Michelle does with H Mart. So in Beacon Hill, there's a grocery store called Foolie. Um, It's actually Vietnamese-owned, but it carries mostly just Filipino ingredients. And I actually grew up going there as a child with my dad. After I'd moved away, I forgot about that place. And then when I moved to Beacon Hill, I found Fuli again, and there was that moment of, like, I've been here before, and it was so beautiful. Like, they have this deli case full of Philippine food, and you're just like, oh my gosh, like, I remember the smells and, like, the aisles and it looks exactly the same and that place I think is so iconic to not just myself but a lot of the Filipino families that still live on Beacon Hill.
0: At Musong, Melissa cooks the Philippine dishes a family might eat at home but she uses modern techniques and seasonal local ingredients. Her entire staff is made up of young Filipinos and she's very focused on making sure this food gets passed down to the next generations.
1: We started Musong Little Wildcats which is a kids cooking class. Um, And so we came up with this idea of, like, wouldn't it be great if we had these classes where kids could eat food that they don't usually eat, Um, like, you know, panse, adobo, other things. And then they'd eat the dinner with their parents, and it was super beautiful. All right, so I've been talking to these women about foods that are
0: meaningful in their lives, foods that connect them to their culture. But when we come back, Michelle reveals her favorite trashy snack. of my favorite things to ask people whether it's a guest on the show or someone I'm on a hike with is what is your favorite trashy snack and Michelle has a particularly good answer
2: oh yeah um I really like flaming hot Cheetos with lemon juice so I'll like pour a bag of flaming hot Cheetos and I'll like douse it with lemon juice and then I'll eat it with chopsticks almost like it's like cereal you know <laughs> you um I have cereal
0: had- with chopsticks
2: uh, I do not eat cereal with chopsticks, <laughs> right. but I mean, like it soaks up the liquid. It like takes on this like liquid coating uh. in a way, you know. But my best friend growing up was like half Mexican and her her whole family ate this this weird snack and uh, I, I really fell in love with it when I was a kid. <laughs> I think eating them with chopsticks, though, is so classy. That's my that's my addition. They used to just eat it with their hands and then all of their like fingers would be like bright red all the time. And so I was like, oh, I'll use chopsticks and that will keep me from getting messy. And that was Michelle Zonner's Last Meal.
0: Make sure and pick up a copy of her book, Crying in H Mart. I highly recommend you buy the book from a local independent bookseller trying to keep those guys open. I know it's easy to order it online from the big company. But we got to help out the little guys. All right, that's my little preaching section. But I want to tell you that I loved her book. And I highly recommend getting Korean takeout when you're going to read because I ended up having to make a mad dash and go out and get Korean food because everything she describes in the book sounds so delicious. Oh, and Japanese Breakfast new album, Jubilee, comes out on June 4th. Oh, one more question. So when I was in my early 20s, I was a music journalist, in quotes, for my, you know, Independent Weekly in my college town. And I was really bad at it. I asked the stupidest questions. And the question that I know now is the worst to ask I'm going to ask you, uh, which is, where does your band name come from? Which was like a question I asked every time. But I'm so curious because I love... Japanese breakfast and I lived in Japan and so I would love to know where it came from.
2: Yeah, I guess I was just like young and stupid and I just like, you know, this was before my mom got sick and I became kind of like really fascinated with this Korean part of my identity and and it became a very confusing band uh, name to have, but when I started the band I was uploading all of my demos onto Tumblr and I was like following a lot of like anime gif blogs there was like an anime gif of um, Japanese breakfast and it just was like A really like soothing, sort of like nostalgic image, you know, watching anime when I was a kid and like so neat and soothing. Thanks to Melissa Miranda, chef owner of Musong
0: in Seattle's Beacon Hill neighborhood. You can find a link to make a reservation or order takeout in the show notes.
1: The restaurant was never meant to be about me. Um, It was never meant to be just about my story. It was meant to honor, you know, those before us that have made sacrifices and their stories and their journeys.
0: Your Last Meal is produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen. If you're not already, make sure you're subscribed to the show. That way you'll get the episodes as soon as they come out. Make sure to leave a review, follow along on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell, that's B-E-L-L-E. I am Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. This is crazy. And I go. am recording too and speaking in a weird cadence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was racing to finish your book because I just got it on Thursday and I have like half a chapter left. Up until this moment, I was like I think I oh could
2: I think I could finish it because it's so good. I love your book. Thank you. Thank you so much.